everybody. Welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You, episode seven. I am Megan. I'm Mary Kay. And I am Mary. Our lovely guest has returned. You guys might recognize my dulcet tones from the last episode about The Shining. I was the really depressing one. <laughs> we are talking about uh, Perfume, the story of a murderer. Mary Kay first introduced me to this because she read it or was starting to read it and was like, I'm buying you a book. Read this with me. We're going to do a book club. And of course, <laughs> the book club went up and... This is what it turned into, a scary movie club. <laughs> and I did the same thing with, well, not with the club part, but I bought it for you and Mary. And I was like, both of you need to read this right away. I was going to say, I, I can't remember if the copy I have is actually Mary Kay's, but I thought you just bought me one and gave it to me. I think so. I was on that paperback swap thing so I could get them for like, you know, you trade in your paperbacks you don't want anymore and just get whatever. And it was on there somehow. But we are going to talk about the movie, which is a pretty close plot-wise adaptation from the from the novel. So, Reader's Digest version, Cliff Notes version, kind of, except for correct. You guys know that, right? Like, Cliff Notes are usually wrong on purpose. Because they're teachers who write them, and they're like, we're going we're gonna to get y'all. Anyway, okay, so it starts off, oh, it's true. Um, it starts off in... Uh, 18th century Paris, and a woman in a market gives birth to, and you guys are going to have to help me, especially making you speak French, right? Jean-Baptiste Grenouille. Did I get it? Grenouille. Oui. Grenouille. Yeah. I spelled it phonetically in my notes, so I don't know how you spell it, actually. French has a lot of extra vowels. But she's under a fish stall, and so she gives birth to this infant and leaves him for dead. And in the book, they call, all, this is her fifth birth and they she's they say that like all of them have been stillborn or semi stillborn what does that mean i uh, i'm guessing not dead <laughs> yep yeah that's that was my question watching the movie was uh, um that seems binary guys are you telling us that she is a serial killer already so the people okay. at the market hear the baby crying and they rescue him and they hang the mother for attempted murder, which, by the way, why aren't we still trying attempted murder as actual murder? Because you shouldn't get off lighter because you're bad at murder. I don't think like if you tried to do it, you did it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so Grenouille gets sent to a wet nurse who gets freaked out because he drinks too much milk and because he doesn't have a smell, like he doesn't have a baby smell. And so then he gets sent to an orphanage where he's mostly ignored and the kids are all scared of him because he doesn't have a smell, but they don't know that that's why. And so they try to suffocate him a few times. Now, this is mostly in the in the book, right? The wet nurse doesn't happen in the film. Ba- barely. There's like a barely scene. with a, Right. Yeah, okay. I was like, it's quick. like... It's quick in the book too, but that's how when we first find out that he doesn't have a body odor and that's what makes him freaky. So I feel like it was worth mentioning. Um, I think we might find out in a, in a voiceover version of that. Yeah. Um, okay, so Grinnelly like barely talks, but he understands a lot because he has a hypersensitive sense of smell. Hypersensitive sense. I couldn't figure out how to phrase that where it wasn't redundant. I don't know, but he can smell things that other people can't smell. Like glass is the big one. Uh, and things that, like, don't generally have smells. So the orphanage lady sells him to a tanner because the state stops paying for his board. And when he turns 13, the tanner gives him the afternoon off, and he goes off exploring and, like, they call it hunting. But he's just kind of prowling through Paris, which is a really stinky place, and that's really how we see 
all of Paris in the 18th century is like by the smells that he has, which is really interesting narrative. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but so he finds this girl who smells perfect and he stalks her and she sneaks up and he sneaks up behind her to smell her. Like he's not touching her. He's just smelling her because that's much better. Yes, exactly. It's weirder. Um, and she, so she gets really freaked out and then he panics and kills her. Is that part right? Mm-hmm. He smothers her. Yeah. By accident. He just wants her to be quiet. It's like a Lenny situation, right? It's very much that. Yes. He accidentally yeah. suffocates her. So when she dies, he like takes her clothes off so he can smell her better. Like the smell of her, like her odor. And while, as she's dying, his, her smell fades. And so it's gone forever. And you smell different when you die, I guess. I mean, I know you do eventually, but, like, right away, apparently. And he doesn't tell anyone about that, and then he runs away. And then later, he has to deliver all these hides to a professional perfumer who's not very good at it. He just imitates other people's stuff. And then he demonstrates that he's basically a savant and tells the perfumer, okay, Baldin? Is that how you say his name? Baldini? Well, I mean, technically, it'd probably be, like, Baldon. He's Italian. He's right? Yeah, he spoke Italian throughout. Yeah, he said, like, basta and da, da, da. Okay, that's what I thought. So, and it's played by Dustin Hoffman, just so you have, like, that visual. And then he tells him, like, you know, I have to work for you because I must learn how to preserve scent. Like, that's his objective the whole game. Then Baldine is like, yeah, he's he actually is a genius. He's not. So he works for him for a really long time and basically makes him a bazillionaire for a pittance because he doesn't care about money or anything. He just wants to preserve that scent. And then Baldine is coaching him all these like professional ways of distilling the scent, basically. And he tries to distill the scent of glass, which glass doesn't have a smell, which is what Baldine tells him. He laughs in his face and he's like, you can never distill the scent of a human or of glass. These things don't smell. And then Grenoui passes out and then gets super sick. And this is where it gets kind of dicey. I don't remember what happens, everything every single plot point after this, so I condensed it. But I don't want to give you guys too much information if you haven't seen or read it, because I feel like it's worth seeing and or reading. I've read it over seeing it, honestly, but that's me. Almost always what I say, but not always, but almost. Then, um, so he learns many different ways to distill scents, and he tries to replicate the one, that one girl's that he murdered throughout. Like, that's why he keeps killing people, to distill their scent. And to make, to recreate hers, basically, the whole time. So he kills a bunch of girls. They're all virgins except for the, basically, the prototype. He pays a prostitute to try to distill her scent. She's like, this is weird, I'm going home, and then he kills her. So she's the only one who's not a virgin, who he uses in the perfume. The perfume is, he tur- it turns out to basically be a love potion. The police finally catch him, or I think it's the police. It might be like a vigilante justice system. I couldn't tell. They were aristocratic in some way. So as he's finishing the perfume, they catch him. When they bring him to the gallows, he puts the perfume on, and the whole crowd falls in love with him, and then they all have an orgy. And in order to protect their dignity and hide their embarrassment, the town agrees that we're going to let him off, and they execute someone else instead. That's actually not an ending that I made up. That's like the actual tying together of stuff. Like a, like a person, a person filmed that and then put it on a screen for other people to watch. So, post orgy, Grenoy feels like he's failed. He just kind of wanders around for a while, and then he goes to a shanty town in some place. I was not clear where that was. The shanty town is actually in the in the movie, at least. It's uh, that he returns to the fish market where he was born. That his like sense of smell draws him back through sense memory. Yeah, and dumps the perfume over his head, 
all of it, the whole bottle. And then all of the people who are homeless are so overwhelmed with love that they literally tear him apart. And that's the end. My favorite thing, though, after we kind of like made our outline, the very first line of Mary's outline is, holy shit, I hated this. <laughs> Please elaborate. Um, well, I spent the first like hour being like, man, for such an interesting premise, there is not a lot of excitement. Like, you called this the story of a murderer. He mostly doesn't understand that people need to breathe when they live and accidentally kills a girl and then runs around smelling shit. I, I, like, okay. I thought, well, you know, surely we're getting there. And then I checked the time and I was like, there is how much more movie? What? What is happening? And then in the last half hour of the movie, everything that's ever happened, happened, whether it made sense or not. And it did not. It did not none of it. And I just... Most of my notes toward the end are a question, something to the effect of like, oh, are we supposed to, oh, okay, okay. Like all the notes end with some version of, sure, yeah, sure, okay, okay, buddy. So yeah, I think I, I think my note was fascinating premise, lousy execution. That I loved the idea that if you describe this movie to me, it's, it's fascinating and I want to see it. If you show it to me, I feel rage and hopelessness and other negative things. I get that, though, because I read the book first, and then while I watched the movie, was like, this is pretty close to the book. That made me, that satisfied me. But obviously, like, there's a whole lot of nuance that you can do in prose that you can't really, I mean, I guess you can do it. No, I mean, you can show me things that smell, but. But it also. You can show me things that smell. I understand that. You show me a bunch of things that smell in a row. I understand that Paris in the 18th century was smelly. That's cool. You didn't give me any characters with any meaningful traits, development, anything identifiable as as human. So I never had an anchor or a through line. And it really, honestly, it was until fairly late in the movie that I was even confident it should be Grunwee. And then I was like, oh no. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not on board with that. I can't identify with this dude. Oh no, absolutely not. You haven't given me anything about him to identify with. His his, defining characteristic is outsider so unless i have ever felt like my genius was so immense that i could not possibly connect to another human being uh but that's that's it that's the extent of my ability to connect with him i kind of i kind of identify identify with him a little bit but not in a murdery way in like a trying to i don't want to kill anybody to preserve their scent particularly I mean, I do have a, I smell more than most people smell, but I don't want especially to preserve anyone's body odor. I don't need that. I'm not about that. I will say though, like the, you know what we didn't do? The icebreaker. Yeah. We never, did. <laughs> never did it. Yeah. But like, <laughs> so we always hang forget. On. I want to make one point and then let's do it. Yeah. Finish okay. your thought. Finish your thought. Um, so to kind of build on your point. Mary about like not being able to identify with characters I feel like so much of any movie that's adapted from like a really established classic novel has to have the voiceover do that because it does it in the writing style like uh the the easiest example that I thought of was like the great Gatsby that they just did totally captured the essence of the 20s right like the parties absolutely the way that I pictured them in the book but then you have to at the end have someone say boats borne back ceaselessly into the past because that's how it ends. That's the ending. So, I mean, like, I don't know. How did you guys feel about that voiceover? Those are my favorite parts, <laughs> I think. I liked, I liked the 
voiceovers. In the be- in the early stages, I thought, oh, this is being established like this sort of omniscient. It sounded almost fairy tale like. Um, I thought, oh, especially because the people come and go from Gromwe's life in such a as if it's an orbit, right? The whole world revolves around him, and when he's done with somebody, they just die. It's it's the kind of magical thinking that children have. And I thought, oh, that that's the that's the ride we're going to take with this guy is that he's never really going to get past this kind of thinking about other people because he can't understand them. Cool, cool. And that did not happen. And also, the voiceover just vanished for like an hour. It's, I actually have a note like, wait, is it coming back? What happened? And when it came back, it was like, it is now the end of the movie. And here are all the themes you should have gotten to on your own, you fucking idiot. <laughs> so, wow. so I liked I liked the early stages of it with the whole, like, uh, you know, and, and so the first sound he made condemned his mother to death. I was like, oh, great. That's, yes, works. Beautiful establishes that clearly. And... We kind of got away from it. It almost reminded me of uh, the voiceover in Pushing Daisies. Well, it's a very, it's a very uh, magical, fantastic. The uh, aesthetic is really fantastical, and the voiceover functions in that similar way of kind of like taking you by the hand as this fairy tale voice and leading you through the kind of experience of reading a fairy tale as a little kid. That's really cool, and I think that the voice that the novel is in is probably one of my my actual favorite aspect of the book, um, despite it's being about murderers and. And dying and sex, which are my other favorite aspects of the book, of anything. Um, but speaking of fantasy, uh, Megan, do you want to do our icebreaker now? <laughs> we didn't need it. We just jumped straight in. We jumped head first. We can do that. Okay, so for our icebreaker today, we decided, since everyone in this in this book, in this movie, has like a specific scent, and the whole premise is that they're trying to like essentially bottle... These scents. So if your persona had a scent, what would your perfume be? What would your scents be? Guess first. Hold on. She has to finish her sip of wine. I, I said, I said, son of a bitch under my voice. You couldn't hear me because I muted you while I was drinking and nibbling my charcuterie. What scents would make up your persona perfume, Mary? Um, I've actually done this before and my brother really nailed it. Because <clears throat> I jokingly <laughs> was like, yeah, no one would want my fragrance. Because if it really like smelled like the essence of me, it would be like lavender campfire and curry and my brother was like curry and i was my brother was like yeah you just gotta add splash of booze over the top of it and that's like yeah we start out like it's going to be appealing and feminine and then it actually ends up being things on fire things that put your butthole on fire and things that are flammable so (laughs) (laughs) what about you mary Kay? what would your persona perfume be I was thinking about it, and I think it would be the smell of new pages, not the smell of a library. Like when you open a new book and fan it, like that, and probably like a wine smell, and then probably like a little sweat. Yes? Was your hand up, Mary? <laughs> I think I think the closing question should be, what are the notes in the fragrance you actually wear? Because I just realized, like, this is all, like, what we're describing is very different than what I know you wear and than what I actually wear. All right. I think that mine would be also lavender because it's one of my favorite scents, but it also reminds me of my wedding in Paris. So it's like you can see on my wall back here. That was like a little bundle of lavender that I stole from the bridge that I got married on. And in Paris, like after it was done, like, let's go take pictures. And I was like, I need to steal this. Please hold on. So I just like chopped it down and shoved it in my little like car. And I was like, don't let me forget this. So lavender... 
<laughs> this makes you sound like a real a real rapscallion, like a, like a bit of a little. I like to think of like myself as one, like, like you're like a little urchin, like at your own wedding, like <laughs> siphoning through lavender like, fields. Oh, mate, and like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And uh, cedarwood, I think, would be in that because I really like to be outdoors and I like to hike and I like woodsy scents. And the last scent that would be in it would either be maybe like an Earl Grey kind of like tea smell because I drink a lot of tea and I like to feel fancy or maybe like old books or maybe both. Maybe I would have four cents because I like to be extra. Well, that legendary Egyptian perfume had 13 notes, so. So there you go. Just saying. You can do that if you want, apparently. I don't know. Yeah. Remind me the next time that I see you, Mary Kay, to let you sniff a candle that I have. A friend of mine, the girl that made my wedding candles, makes like a bunch of other like random candles and this one was I can't remember what she named it but it's supposed to be like a good reading day candle and it's Merlot Black Rose and Old Books and I feel like that's pretty much what you just you might not let me put my hands on it though I'm just saying that's okay I'll get another one does anyone have any like do you have more of like the final thoughts of the film I wrote so that you know so this is to me this was the story of how if we could just let them all work tortured air quotes, geniuses, would prove they deserved to abuse other people in the name of their art, which also deserves air quotes there. On the Shining episode, I was like, yeah, director show their ass. So Kubrick is so excited about King's story, but then the story he makes is very different, and they each make a protagonist that is much more like themselves. And in that context, watching this movie, I just thought, there's no way this director is an okay guy, like in person, right? Like, if this is the story you want to tell, if this is exciting to you, and this is how you tell it, dear God... And I did read that he actually made the actors wear their costumes for days at a stretch so they would actually smell ratty, which is cool because no one can possibly act unless it is actually happening to them, right? I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on that, but I, I like leapt off the screen. And that's part of why I hated it so much and got so angry. Was that about halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, is that the point of all this? Like he's actually going to find a success. And when he does, it's still not going to be enough because his little heart still hurts. What? But we'll all be so glad we let him murder us for a while? Okay, wow. And I never saw anything to disprove it to me. I feel like when I did my notes, I kind of broke it down into a couple, like, major themes, I guess, that I noticed. Or I remembered from reading the book, and then I noticed in the movie. And I think the first one that I wrote was, like, the dark irony, or the dark humor and irony. Uh, specifically, like, naming him, number one. And I should probably have my actual note. So, like, his name is Jean-Baptiste Grand-Uy, basically, which in itself is kind of an ironic name. And, but um, I know, like, John, like, John the Baptist was around at this time, and he, like, Jean-Baptiste was a popular name in this particular time in France. But it's kind of darkly ironic to... To baptize an infant whose mother had been decapitated with... What did I... I don't know. Like, it's written... Yeah, okay. There we go. Okay, so it did. Like, I don't remember it happening now that I wrote it, but, like, I obviously would have wrote it for a reason. So John the Baptist is, like, is the prophet, is the is the man who's thought to be crazy his entire life because of what he can see and what he can understand that no one else can. And John the Baptist is also... Also ends his life a sacrificial lamb. He's... His head is served on a platter... To uh, in the name of in the name of in decadence. Yeah, so it was just ironic that John the Baptist was decapitated and his mother was decapitated, and then he has like this name 
which is kind of ironic in and of itself. So it kind of goes beyond like situational transient humor and kind of like the realm of cruelty. It's kind of just like a really awful reminder of his name. Did they did they behead her in the book? Because in the movie they hang her. I thought they. I think they they beheaded her in the book. I think that's where my notes are going to be confusing. And if that's wrong, then it could also be wrong. This one kind of ends up bleeding into like a later one, but I feel like all the other characters that he kind of encounters, like in the beginning, are all like kind of meant to be comical in a way. Like they're all almost caricatures, and they all died in very ironic, like ironic deaths relating to it. So, like, is it Grimmel? Is that how you pronounce it? The orphanage owner? Grimmel? I don't know. Um, I mean, no. The orphanage, oh, is it the orphanage owner? Yeah, because uh, Madame, what's her name? Is it Madame Grimmel? I think so. So I put in there, like, the drowner of, like, original, like, the original, like, drowner of Grinui's, like, humanity, basically. It's, like, the first thing that put him down this track of shit, basically. Eventually, like, she drowns in the same river. And then Baldini is uh, smugly sleeping in his little ritzy house on pont change I think, is where his little house is. But it's, like, the upper-class neighborhood, especially in this time. And he dies because his house collapses into the river. There's some symmetry to all these people dying, what they've gotten, what they wanted from him. So it looks, on, on the one hand, yeah, these, all, these people all die when he's done with them, which is magical on his part. But for them, they all die once they've sold him. Well, yeah, they all die as soon as they pass him on basically, as they leave their life. And I kind of talk about that, or I have it written down to talk about later, kind of where I toy around with the idea of Grinui as, like, an agent of death in his own way, which I guess this is probably a good part just to kind of, like, toss that in there. But, I mean, it's not only his murder victims, essentially, that die at the hands of him. And so, like, in the book, as these people are, like, leaving Grinui's life is kind of where you find out about their sticky endings. But Gaillard dies in a hospital bed alone. And that was, like, her greatest fear. And I think that's the... No, she dies in a hospital bed with five other women pressed against her. Which is the opposite of what she wanted. She wanted to be alone in privacy. Well, I meant alone as in, like... Well, she... I mean, most of us would be terrified to die alone, but that's what she's saving for. She's saving up so that she can be alone. That's why she runs the orphanage, which her money runs out before she dies. She lives too long. And then they take her to, like, a group hospice because she doesn't have any money. And they just wait for her to die in front of, like, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Grimmel dies literally the night that... He basically sold him. Like, he died the night that he was sold. Yeah, he does. Um, He's, uh, immediately after selling him, he spends the money on a night of carousing and falls into the river. Basically, all of these people treat him like they just meet his basic needs. They kind of just treat him almost like you would treat livestock. You just meet their basic needs. There's no affection. There's no compassion, no understanding. He kind of has lack of role models in a sense. So he's already like this social anomaly and it just becomes worse and worse for him. But then as soon as these people rid themselves of them, basically they meet their untimely end. And so like, you know, like Baldini, the very night after Grinui leaves, his house falls in the river and the orphanage owner... After she rids him, she dies in the hospital. And then Grimmel, the very next night, 
then he dies. So it's like they all meet their untimely ends the second as they go. So it's like he is the agent of death, basically, outside of just his murder victim. And in the movie, so they make the choice that, uh, that the orphanage owner is also robbed. Of the, so she's robbed of the money that she's that she made by selling him, and her throat is cut. The tanner falls into the river on the money he got, drunk on the money he got for selling him. Baldini gets the list of perfect fragrances and dies for the tremor he's been ignoring. The same way he refused to open his mind to the way the the like fragrance industry was evolving basically the way he didn't want to recognize Grenouille at the same when he met him for what he was so they all they keep dying off of the exact thing that they wanted from him too yeah so like the 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 curse trope is alive and well for sure in this book and in this movie yeah and that's something that was set up well in the voiceover actually that very first um and with his so the first sound he made tells you immediately, oh, this is the story of a murderer, but not exactly what I thought. Yeah, that's a nice foreshadowing that would not be overt without the narrative voice, which I don't know if you guys, you probably do already know this, but I don't know to mispronounce his name, but Tom Tykwer, is that how you say it? Tom Tykwer? Tykwer, he's German. Tykwer, okay, thank you. Tom Tykwer took on this project after many directors like Kubrick and Tim Burton are on record of saying this is unfilmable. It gets a novel. It doesn't work in film. Which I think like this is probably as close as you can get to making like a solid adaptation of this novel. But then if without the narrative it doesn't work. Like without the voiceover, it wouldn't work. When it was good it was very, very good and when it was bad it was horrid. And I think that the, one of the largest problems that this movie has is that Tigfer spends 30 seconds showing us something that we understood after the first seven. Like, not trusting his audience or not trusting himself. I'm not sure. But a lot of it is just that the movie didn't have to be that long to do everything it did. And probably would have been better had with a little less time to breathe, basically. You guys said a lot of smart things about smell. And, and like, just the way that... Yeah, smell and our brains. And I really want to hear you guys talk about this because this is the kind of... About the smell? Well, it's also playing on the idea of animal pheromones. Because we smell things that we don't know that we're smelling. And he knows that he's smelling all of those things, which is what makes him not human. He's He's more animalistic than human because he smells things that aren't there. Like, glass doesn't have a smell to us, but it does to him. And he could like he can smell things fast too. Like he could tell when strangers were coming up the walk and when thunderstorms would happen like hours and hours in advance because he could smell them and we can't. So it seems like supernatural. Yeah, like the sovereignty of sin and the unconscious. So the novel in the movie takes premise basically is that scent controls our subconscious. For the most part. And like ultimately like that controls our behavior. And so not only does Grinui have this supernatural sense of smell then that's like the center of the plot. And it's the idea, basically, that human scent is super integral to their humanity. It's like we talked about, like, when we talked about what, you know, our persona perfume would be. It's the things that kind of make us us or things that are special to us. So I think that speaks volumes about why certain people would be attracted to certain scents in regards to this movie. And then the lack of scent that Grinui has kind of makes people view him as 
not a real human. He's almost like a subhuman because he's lacking this thing that people can latch on to and, and make sense of. And that's where, so that was one of those things that got frustrating for me because I felt like they broke their own rules regarding, like, it seemed like his radius of smell was comparable to other people's, maybe better, but not, like, shocking. So when it's down to the, like, the, the critical moment, the turning point, and he can smell this girl miles and miles away and, like, follow her like a bloodhound. I was like, okay, so is he a human with a great sense of sense of smell? Or is this a Superman situation? You really need to clarify because he's not been able, as far as I can tell, he's not been able to do this before now. Not this much, not this far. And from that point on in the movie, it's like, all he has to do is like think about someone far away and he can smell them, which is cool. But I think that's like more X-Men than Perfume, the story of a murderer. I love Supernatural, just that's, you can't spend the whole movie telling me that's not what's happening and then do it. Well, I think it has something to do with, and there's no way of knowing this in the movie, but in the book, he's 13 when he has that afternoon off and hunts the girl down. Yeah. So they're both at, like, puberty ages, which is when, first of all, your body starts to have more smells. Like, I don't know when the last time you guys were around a 13-year-old was, but it's Like this week? Like, all the time? Oh, girl, it starts at, like, 10 now. I don't know what they're putting in this. I don't know what they're putting in the chicken of the supermarkets these days. Yeah, it's ten. Well, but also like that's when he would have started if he was a normal human, being attracted to someone, probably, probably girls, and that's the way that he is attracted to them. That's the way that we all are attracted to other humans. We just don't register it. So it's like a it's like a really gross way of like picking on the girl that you like. <laughs> I'm gonna. Kill you and then preserve your well, sin. And I mean, the thing is, we we're we're conscious about it. We're conscious about it to the degree that we can control it, right? Like that's why all of our stuff is fragranced. Like that that's a line in every other country song about how her hair smelled. In other genres besides country, smelling sweat on somebody as a, like, an attractive factor. Um, how many poems uh, address smelling somebody on your sheets? after they're gone recently like having been through a breakup after so many years together i've been noticing the absence of smells like oh i didn't even recognize that when it was there i didn't think of it as an attractive thing until it had been long enough that i couldn't see it anymore or couldn't smell it anymore you know couldn't feel it and i think that was a pretty solid freudian slip there of c that it's so visceral yeah that it doesn't feel like it feels more tangible or measurable than it is. Yeah, and the other thing is, like, especially in America, but in other countries as well, once you kind of understand, like, you have to watch the video about your changing body and how you might need to shower twice a day now that you sweat more. You don't let your smells chill. Like, you don't let them happen. You, as soon as you start sweating, stop sweating, wash it off. Like, that's what we do now. When you're 14, when you're 15, you don't know you need to do that yet. So, like, that's a real... That's a smell. You can smell it from across the room. It's that rough. And if you have a sensitive nose like me or like um, Grunway, you might smell it across the street. You might. I don't know. I mean, it's rough out there sometimes, especially if there's a lot of them in the same room. Like as a group, 15-year-olds don't smell great. But that's what blew my mind in the conclusion. Um, and even leading up to it, that so Alan Rickman also who A, can do no wrong, and then I saw this, and I was like, you put my man through that? I can't believe you, you monsters. Why the fuck is he kneeling to this dude? I will kill everyone. Um, but Alan Rickman says, 
he's picking beautiful girls. Other people consider them to be beautiful, too. And certainly, like, every society has a normative idea of, of what is what is pretty and what isn't. Within that, though, the thing that we all talk about as, well, you can't account for, is that pheromonal attraction, that there are going to be people that you just find so appealing with not a lot of explanation except animal attraction. Why are the 13 people he finds attractive in this exact way, A, attractive to anyone else, and B, so attractive once distilled down to this essence that the entire world dissolves into an orgy? And he says, though, like, you know, everyone has a unique smell, but that beautiful girls have a better scent than other girls and that redheads have the best smell which was interesting to me that he said that beautiful girls smell better because I feel like beauty is such a subjective thing that what's beautiful to him to have a great smell. I understand I understand having that reaction the first time you get to actually smell Dwayne the Rock Johnson in the flesh. What do you think, no right quick, what, just, what do you think? Redemption. If his persona the and the, same the people's eyebrow was a scent. <laughs> right? Like. What does it smell like? He smells like, he smells like, he smells like money. Smells like money. He smells like the deodorant that one hot teacher or coach wore. And he smells like laundry. And he smells like he just just finished cooking something. Yeah, something like domestic. Like he just finished cooking something. So he doesn't like reek of food, but like he just cooked something. And you can't put your finger on it, but it's pleasant. Steak. Like he, he just made a steak. Like, yeah, he smells like steak. Mm-hmm. He is steak. He doesn't just smell like it. He is steak. Oh my God, Mary Kay. So you're you're telling us you have terrible taste in men, Megan. Don't worry, I'll cut that out. <laughs> Do, why would you cut that out? What if he hears it and falls in love with you? Fuck you. That's never gonna... Don't tease me like that, Dwayne. Isn't that why we're doing this? Isn't that why... Are we doing this for the attention of Dwayne the Rock Johnson or no? Because if it's or not, nah, if it's or not, nah, I, I will find a different podcast to be on. I swear to God. Yes. <laughs> Always everything, yeah. But yeah, no, okay, so we're talking about such subjective things, like, even for even fragrances that are widely regarded to be pleasant, and that, like, you know, so many things are smell of roses, or smell of coconut, or whatever. Even then, it's... Oh, he might have a coconut, and like, top note. Sunblock steak and vitamins, that sounds super appealing. Okay, so he smells like sunblock, that's the third thing. Okay, again, there's no accounting for, and apparently your no accounting for taste is shit. That smell is so subjective that even a smell you like, you don't like everywhere. I like the smell of coconut. I don't like it on my body because I don't like to smell like a food. Everything is so subjective about it. And attraction is so subjective. And it's associative. Yes. So how is it, like, it's just, if you're going to tell me that this really is science and not magic, I can't, I just can't get there. That the 13 women he picked are... I, I understand that because, like... I mean, when I think of coconuts, I think of toasted coconut and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But I've also had, like, somebody break a bottle of coconut liqueur at a party and then somebody else come in and be like, it smells like a tannin bed in this bitch. So, I mean, I get that. It's associative. It depends on your experiences. When you smell the, that cologne curve that's, like, the one that everyone wore for a long time, it smells good objectively, but it reminds me of my first boyfriend, which is a long time ago. I'm real weird. And see... I am completely flipped. I think now that it, objectively, it smells like bad teenage boy cologne. But personally, I have a good association with, for me, this is bad, but the person who wore it was a friend and we were very close. So when I smell it, 
I think of this dude, Tim, and all the happy memories we had. So I am still happy to smell Curve, even if when I do, I look for the person who's wearing it and get as far away from them as I can. I don't mind it that much, but whatever. I can't be choosy. Like, if you're still wearing Curve, I don't want it anymore. I can't be choosy about that. I'm choosy about literally every other thing. So I got to make some concessions somewhere. If you wear Curve, it's fine. You can still call me. Okay. I mean, to me, like... To me, Curve is on the level of, like, puka shells and the frosted tips because it's so visceral and because that association is so strong. Like, if you still wear it, no, something, something didn't grow up. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. I don't know. Not a thing I was going to say, but now I forgot what it was. Oh, Proust wrote, like, an eight-volume single text about... Proust? The... I'm going to Google it so I don't sound like an idiot, and then I'm going to cut all of this. Oh, no. It's that the, the, the experience that prompts the rest of the text is the smell of a Madeline. Okay, so isn't it talking about smell the whole time, the way this book is? No, just the, how evocative that, that experience, the, the experience of smell is, that it can send you into this novel-length reverie. I haven't read all eight volumes of that. I just know it, like, I just know enough to know that Courtney Love mispronounced it. That's basically all I know. Did she say Proust? Yep. That's unfortunate. I know. Which, side note, I saw his grave when I was in Paris, and there's boxes of Madelines and boxes of tea sitting, like, on his grave. Just as, like, just a random side note. Thought it was kind of cool. That's thoughtful for his corpse. (laughs) If if Proust is associated with the Madelines, is it Madelines or Madelines? It's either. Uh Tomato, tomato. Okay. With the cookies and the tea. Why do you associate, why does one, and this is a trap, why does one associate yellow plums with victim virgins? I don't know, because honestly, before this book slash movie, I didn't know yellow plums existed especially. Same. I don't know. Let's Google it. To Google. Okay. Well, they do exist. It's also known as a Mirabelle prune. Prune is a lot less sexy than a plum. They are literal. But you know, like all fruit is the forbidden fruit. Well, we use yeah, and we use plum as a as a sort of what when something is the best of something, it is the we use it as a superlative. That's what I wanted. We use plum as a superlative. Yeah, like a plum job, right? Like uh, it, it's the kind of, kind of thing that you that you pluck at its ripest. It's juicy. It's. I thought you said plum job, and I thought that was kind of some sexual thing that I was not in the loop about. <laughs> Megan's like, I'm Googling this. What is this? Who's doing stuff I don't know about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, people are apparently doing weird, sexy things with fruits that, mm mm-mm. No, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, I was thinking about the kind of sexual fantasy that is making 40K a year. So that's, you know, similar, yes. Um, so... Well, yellow is always associated with sickness or newness, which both of these girls are for a second. Like, they're not really sick, but they do die right away. And then did you notice during the orgy that basket tops over? It's full of yellow plums. Oh, that was a nice touch. So I listened to an interview with Tom Tickver, and um, he said he hired a dance troupe to orchestrate the orgy scene. As I w- Did you listen to that too? I did listen to it, but I read it. It sounds great, and it makes a lot of sense. Right? Like, it, like, if you watch it, it's like, there's no way they hired extras to do this. Like, they're not just like, and go. Go. <laughs> like, there's no way. <laughs> That's a lesson I learned in choreography class with Marlene Pennison, sophomore year of college. If you want something to look chaotic, it has to be the best choreographed woman in your, in your piece. 
That's what I want to do with my dance degree. Since I don't use it now, I'm going to choreograph orgies in movies for a living. My mom will be so proud. Um, just make sure that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is there and that he has recently cooked a steak. No, that's, to be fair, that's Mary's favorite. He's my top five for sure, but. I was going to say, I'm standing right here. I'm, I'm on this call, guys. Be cool. Um, okay, he's. Not, I stand by Jack Nicholson. I stand by him. I, I've. He's not my only thing. He's just like a thing, and he's like a lot of thing. He's like six foot four, so it's you know it's fine. Just takes up a lot of mental space. Much the way I assume he takes up a lot of physical space. <laughs> Talk about superlative, am I right? <laughs> I, superlative, a superlative that would take one look at my full size bed and be like, "Are you joking?" I feel like he's not into doing it in the bed all the time, though. I feel like he likes to get creative. So that, I agree. So that's okay. I'm glad you went there. I'm gonna go there. How big is your dining room table? Megan doesn't even have one. You just go on the dining room floor. There's whatever. plenty of room on this floor. Get up on that kitchen counter a little bit. Mine are empty right now. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> why would I? Why would I be on the floor with? Why would I be on the floor with one of the hundred people in the world who could actually pick me up during sex? See, done. Why are you even complaining about your full size bed then? I wasn't complaining. Well, now that we've got off on that track, let's get back to let's get back to Proust. Well, yeah, we did Proust. We got him in there for a second, and then we had to undo it by talking about Dwayne the Rock Johnson for a long time. But like on the scent thing, though, I think Mary Kay had a really good question, and I think you asked the same question: is like, why is it only women, and why are they all young women, and why are they all virgins? I think those are all super valid. The what's a legend thing. Which one of you was writing about that scene where he says he doesn't know what a legend is? I had to look up what year this was made to make sure that I wasn't, to, to like, adjust my degree of anger about it. Bearing in mind that what might get made 10, 15, 20 years ago would be a little different. And then I remembered that this is a German movie. And I was like, well, actually, what the fuck then? Y'all don't care. Um, this is so heteronormative that in a multi-hundred person orgy, I did not see men touching each other. No, there were women, though. Of course, because it's heteronormative. The rest of it's so outlandish. I mean, we got to go to the staple on this, right? Um, no, I was being... No, yeah. It, it, okay. <laughs> it was frustrating for me, especially because if this is your title character, like if, if, if you are going to take us into this person's world, this person's story, and his entire story is this nose, this sense of smell, you have just opened yourself up to a fascinating fascinating realm of possibilities with regards to his idea of attraction because when we think about the kind of stuff that we like to smell that we know technically is not good this guy could be attracted to anything anyone and you picked virgin red ginger virgins mm-hmm okay my man okay mm-hmm real imaginative what would be interesting is if like it was not the normal thing that you thought that a teenage boy would be attracted to that's what made it like real crazy Exactly. It's a missed opportunity. Especially if, say, the first time, that's what he's attracted to. And at the very least, he is aware enough of the cultural narrative around him to know that that makes sense. Like, to give it to him for a moment, to give him a little bit of normalcy for a moment, and then rip it away when the next person he's attracted to is not that at all. That's much more interesting. There's more conflict for him. That it just seems like a, an odd choice to have made, unless what you're trying to say is that this is beautiful, and that's it. You guys are good. Which is weird because the only person whose hair I pr- the only person whose hair I profoundly envied in this movie was the prostitutes. So 
don't know who that says anything about, but also it was just like a bomb haircut. She looked great. She actually reminded me of you, Mary Kay, in a very positive way. Like when she, her face first popped up on the screen, I was like, oh. Who? The prostitute. The prostitute. Reminded you of me? Nice. Her actual <laughs> bone structure, good lord, oh, and cool. she has a good haircut. No, and she's she, not. I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah, and she has a good, and she They're has a haircut. High. That's their thing. Yeah, well, she has a haircut yeah, really similar. Dark hair. Yeah. Well, not disheveled, but the like. <laughs> <laughs> if you like a disheveled prostitute, I wear all black and red lipstick. That's my thing. All black, red lipstick, disheveled <laughs> prostitute. One trick pony. We've got a we've got a number for you. Uh, no, no, just the the rock and roll hair was good. Thank you. I liked it. Mm-hmm. Made me want to grow mine back out. So thanks, guys, for making me watch this. I'll take that. So thank you. I appreciate it. And I did have a question. I don't think that Grinway considers himself an artist. I think that he's obsessed and he has a talent. And it's very raw, which is what we see when he goes to talk to Baldini. Right? I've been saying it Baldin, but I think that's how they pronounced it in French. But I think in Italian it would be Baldini. Is that right? Yes, Baldini. They, I think his. I think someone in his life actually called him Baldini directly at least once in the movie. Okay, because that's what stuck with me. And then when he said Basta at one point, I was like, Oh, okay, cool. I'm here now. I am. I'm. I can follow this much better than I can follow any of the French. Fantastic. Same. Okay. So I'm going to say Baldini. So, and I'm wondering if the reason why he didn't consider himself an artist is that his talent goes unrecognized because nobody can understand what he's doing. So, like, if you see a kid and they're coloring and they're really good at coloring, you know, you could be like, this is a really pretty picture. Here's what you should do next. And, like, coach them into the next level. Same with music. If you hear a kid drumming on a table, it's like, you have a really nice sense of rhythm and you can make different sounds with your hands. That's really awesome. Let's get you in a class or whatever, you know. With smell, no one else smells like you do in the way that you do. I mean, so you, there's no, like, moving up in that. Yes. Yeah, uh, because he is the best. He's the best. Like, Baldini what, thought he was the best, and he didn't really know anything about what he was doing. Not really. Um, not talent-wise. He he has the method, but he doesn't have the, the actual, like, gift. So the scene when Grenoui goes into Baldini's shop, and he and Baldini is, and he's like, like you want to make Amor and Psyche, this one scent this other guy's made. He's like, I can make that for you. It's not a good smell. I can make you one that's better. It's what it's trying to do. Which I think is also the first time that Grenwy classifies a scent as good or bad. Yes, that's true. Because that stood out to me as like, that's a weird thing for him to have said, considering that he smells everything and it's the experience of smelling that seems so important Mm -hmm. to him. But for him to identify that as bad, that's a bad fragrance. I was like, oh, okay. Because you didn't say that about the maggots. Right. Well, it's like when you, you are intentionally putting them together, right? Like they don't go together or not in this way. Like I can do it for you. It's trying to do this though. It's trying to recreate this smell. And then he does it. And but he, he takes like a little bit of convincing, but because he's already in dire straits, Baldini is like, yeah, go ahead, try it. And then he does. Not with the unworn side. He's like, this is the same thing. Okay. Do your thing now. Do your thing that's better. Make me this much. And then he opens the stock or puts it on a handkerchief or whatever and, you know, wafts it around. And the whole, I love, this is my favorite, probably my favorite scene. The whole scene behind him, like, turns into, like, this secret garden paradise. 
And then it like the camera rotates around him to so that it's facing him. And like this really beautiful woman kisses him on the cheek and she's like, I love you. Like that's his experience of smelling that. I thought that was so cool. And I wish that that had been done like more because it's like visually we can't, we're all on the same or on a very similar plane, right? Like we can agree like this looks like that. Even if our experiences aren't the same, we have a language for it. So I don't know. I thought that was really cool. And then just that he understood like what would re- make a human react the, that way. But then whenever Baldinius is explaining to him like the legend of the Pharaoh's tomb and the scent that was unreleased that was released that had 13 notes and the 13th one was never found. Grinui just like misses the whole point. He's like, well, what was the 13th scent? What was it? And he's like, that it isn't, there's not one. It's a legend. He's like, what's that? Like, he doesn't understand humans at all. Like there's, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. To me, that's how little it takes for a man to believe he deserves to be one. He found out that they exist four months ago. Then he goes into a cave and he comes out like Christ at Gethsemane, convinced of his destiny to save humankind, which he didn't know was a possibility until a conversation with his boss who was making fun of him several months ago. Cool. Great. Yep. Cool. Cool. And I think it also speaks to that the fetishes, the way we fetishize uh, talent over study. That any artist who who hasn't been classically trained, who hasn't who hasn't studied, that's that's the first line of their biography. That without any training, they accomplished all of this. And uh, I know very few artists, including people who didn't have much training, who didn't have the opportunity for much training early on, who would suggest that, who are proud of that or excited about that. If anything, I've known a lot of people who really prodigiously rose in their chosen field and then said, I can't imagine what I would have done if I'd had that access. I see the people around me that have had that access and, and the, 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 the structure and the, the sense of stability and, and motivation it's given them. And I can't even imagine. But for a great story, what you need is a guy who's obsessed. Yeah, I mean, he does have some training, though. I mean, not at first. But I think that it, it, this is definitely a, the story of a man who's, whose talent is just so extraordinary. Even though he can recognize the way it alienates him, he doesn't necessarily recognize it for what it is or could do. Right. And people don't understand what it actually is. Like, they think he's the devil because he can smell stuff they can't smell. And that make, lets him draw conclusions about what's going to happen that they, they feel is predicting the future. So it, it manifests in a different way that most, like, art forms or those who are inclined to be naturally good at something would show it. Yes. No, and I also, I love that scene with him and and Baldini for their interaction. And I was telling my friend earlier that I was so frustrated watching it because this is the first time we've seen uh, Granui try to be socially appropriate. Every other time he's just like creeping up on people, sniffing them or ignoring them. And this is the first time we've seen him socializing. And he has a lot of intention here. Like he, There is something he wants that's very specific and he's going to get it. He's not leaving here until he gets it. And it's such an exciting thing to finally see what it looks like if he tries and see what his limitations are, and, and to get that set of rules for what this is going to be. Except that I'm also distracted the whole time by the fact that this other huge story thing is happening with him actually crafting a, a fragrance. And I'm getting a whole new set of rules and information for how he understands this, how he executes this, what this what this looks like to him in a very practical way, which we've not gotten to see. And it was a lot to take in at once, especially considering that in the previous 30 minutes, like nothing happened. So it was just like this blast and these, these two really fantastic artists doing fantastic work. Um, 
that I was like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm distracted by how much I'm trying to catch or see, which I'm sure is a function also of watching it with the intent of speaking about it in front of other people later. But I also think I saw things that I might not have noticed or cared about otherwise, like when he picks up the alcohol, uh, Baldini yells at him, like, that's pure alcohol, you can't drop that. The point I don't, I don't believe, based on the shot itself, is it's not, it's not that he doesn't notice or care what's in the bottle. The point is that he's had such a rough life that even though he looks like Christ on the cross skinny, it's nothing to him to pick up this massive jug of alcohol that the pampered Baldini couldn't fathom picking up, let alone swinging around with one hand comfortably. So you get these little things that I, I wish I'd had a little more breathing room to appreciate and all of those other things that I wish he hadn't made me look at all the time. Man, when, we talk, when you were talking about that, like when he finally interacts with another person in dialogue... I was like, you're doing this wrong. He's not going to let you help him. You can't just show up and be like, I have to capture scent. No, that's not the way you do it. You say, hey, like he doesn't he doesn't go about that interaction. Well, and I was like, Baldini, keep an open mind. Keep an open mind, man. But he doesn't know how to interact with people. Like at all. That said, um, based on if you if you guys are if you guys if you guys want a topical joke. If you're going to walk up to anyone and be like, I want to capture the essence of a human woman, apparently Dustin Hoffman's a great choice. You can't capture this essence. This essence is unbottleable. Well, that, and he just hasn't had... No, right. Because everybody's fucking scared of him. Because he's a weirdo and a murderer. Well, he is a weirdo and a murderer, but he's also had this really weird life, and he's never had any sort of role models, basically. Pretty much nobody stepped up for him. Ever. They just passed him on and on and on and on. And so, like, I guess when I was, like, writing down my chunks of major themes, which is what I kind of used to form my outline of thoughts on, was the idea of being, like, an emotionally or a mentally, like, inadequate person. And I don't mean that in, like, the insulting way that I feel like it sounds on there. But none of the people that were in his life and essentially in the role of what should have been a mentor... For him were all pretty emotionally inadequate as a person none of them were capable of showing information whether it was like mentally not capable of showing emotion because uh, what is it madame guy gillard gaillard you know she had head trauma and whatnot and was completely incapable of showing emotion and she kind of sort of just really didn't care and the second that his room and board was not paid for anymore she just said bye see you later so she I mean she obviously had no concern for him and so he was passed off to Grimmel, and he showed himself as being a fantastic worker. And it was noted that he was a great worker. And Boy survived. Was it anthrax? Is that what he survived? He survived something. It was a bunch. It was like measles, smallpox, and consumption, which is tuberculosis, which most people died from. So Yeah, so survived everything, still proved himself to be a great worker, and then goodbye, see you later, and pass him on to the next person. And even, like, Baldini had, like, his own kind of, like, emotional deficiency. So, like, he had no role model at all. And he was already, yeah, basically, he just, nobody nobody was ever there to teach him how to be, I want to say normal, but yeah, kind of no one was there to teach him to be normal. No one's there to say, like, these are appropriate social interactions. Don't stalk women. Don't fucking murder women. Here's how to properly greet somebody. Like, he just, he had none of this. He had no emotional 
mentors or any kind of mentors. And so, like, Boy was doomed from the get-go. Yeah, and he barely had a professional mentor. Only after he was like, look at all my raw talent, how many how many fragrances do you want? Was Baldini like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna, you know, make a fortune off of you, teaching you, like, this basic stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, like, he was still kinder to him, basically, than the other people in his life, but he still only saw him as a source of perfume invention, basically. And But he still felt pretty uncomfortable in his presence. You know, Baldini was pretty concerned with the ritzy things in life and appearances and whatnot, and so he felt really uncomfortable in Grinui's presence. And, uh, yeah, he definitely learns that the only reason that anybody will ever notice him for any reason whatsoever is if they want something for him. I loved, I saw that in the outline, I was like, I love that you put that in there. It makes sense to me that you put that in there. And it also spoke to me about, like, so my my experiences in social services and mental health have made me so much more sensitive to how someone got to where they are, how someone became who they are today. And at the same time, at this moment, in, like, culturally, we are dealing with the reckoning and the outing of man after man after man who's mistreated the people around him in the name of entitlement usually like it doesn't even get them anything the whole point is that they have power the other person doesn't and i thought about i thought a lot about at which point i could have or would have excused him like where in the movie could he have been like no not that way and i would have been like good job buddy as opposed to not too late man (laughs) but yeah i thought a lot about that because I'm glad I, I'm glad I saw your outline before I watched um, this most recent time to think about, like, is there is there a point at which he was redeemable? Is Because I feel like the point of the story is that there is no redemption or not redemption. The curse and the gift are the same thing. The sense of smell will lead him to this tremendous accomplishment. It will hurt him and everyone around him. And that all of this is, in a way, inevitable, provided that he accepts his destiny. Even though it'll kill him either way, it's going to be a different journey. I wondered, like, is there, how much energy do you spend on the people who didn't step up for him? What I wanted to talk about is that at the end, Grenoly dies. And he dies after he pours the love potion over his head. And uh, this is in the voiceover as well, but there's more at the end of the novel. So I wanted to read it because they, uh, like we said, he pours the he pours the perfume over his head. And in this whatever town they're in, I think the market, they eat him and they call them the cannibals at the end of the book. So though the meal lay rather heavy on their stomachs, their hearts were definitely light. All of a sudden, there were delightful bright flutterings in their dark souls and on their faces was a delicate virginal glow of happiness. Perhaps that was why they were shy about looking up and gazing into one another's eyes. When they finally did dare it, at first with stolen glances and then candid ones, they had to smile. They were uncommonly proud. For the first time, they had done something out of love. This is eating him. Well, and I think that's, I guess that's, I I wondered a lot about, like, okay, so he discards someone and then they die. But again, all these people are using him. And, uh... Well, yeah. He doesn't find any use for the love that his perfume created, so it doesn't fulfill him. So it's like... Right, and that's that's the inversion. That's that's the irony, is that he, that, he, that he uses people in this especially horrifying way. Because he can't... He's un- incapable of recognizing them and understanding them as, as beings like his own. Whereas these people use him 
without a, without excuse. These people who are human and understand humans use him with just as much disregard, uh, if not in a murdery. That just occurred to me as we were talking. I was like, oh, maybe that's the point. Who's the real monster? Okay, dude. Okay, again, we're gonna we're gonna fight. If I ever meet this director, we're gonna like fist fight because I'm. I'm done getting pumped up about white boys' extraordinary talents that only they recognize. So I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Let's go. All right. So next point on the, on the outline. I want to know where Alexander the Great fits into this. There was a quote that I had written down in my notes. It was like an Alexander the Great like thing. It was like it was said that when there were no more worlds for him to conquer, that he weeped. So it's similar, like, he had created what he was setting out to create. He created this ultimate perfume that was like a love potion to invoke these feelings of love and acceptance, and he got it, and it kind of wasn't what he thought it was going to be, or there was nothing left for him to do, and it wasn't genuine love for him, and so he was ready to die. There was nothing... He didn't get the fulfillment out of it that I think he was expecting to get from it. There was nothing left for him. Well, yeah, which I think, again, speaks to, like, he... The great genius shares his great gift and is consumed for it by people who are convinced that they've they've done so in appreciation. Well, it's just again that that dichotomy. I think I feel like it's again that dichotomy of like who's who's the monster and how who's the human, right? If these people who can recognize their feelings can recognize their relationship to other people have never felt like they've done something out of love until they destroy him with it, then how much more monstrous is he for having destroyed 13 very specific people in the name of creating the thing that would give these people this experience when he can't understand his relationships at all? I think, yeah, I would say that that's part of what makes it scary is for the most part, I think through the movie and what makes it scary to me is he's spending this entire movie walking on eggshells, like trying to please other people and gets passed around and nobody appreciates the hard work that he's putting in or the creativity that he brings or this ultimate thing that he creates and he's still not fulfilled in the art that he has put out and then he's also not getting the acceptance and love from the people around him that he was seeking and I think that's horrifying on both ends. But that's what he did too. He also thought he was doing it out of appreciation. So is it just like a contagious artistic bullshit. Especially considering that he does this tremendous thing for other people, right? That he gives, he uses his gift, shares his gift. It's this incredible experience for other people, or it could have been or should have been. But when it's not good for him, he's like, well, fuck it. And kills himself in a particularly martyrful, self-pitying way. Cool, dude. Really glad you got to pursue your specific dreams at the expense of a lot of people. There's also like a ton of a biblical illusion in this that is blasphemous and perverse, um, which I don't love. But and I think it also is like, I mean, we're all kind of done with people who are like, look at my natural talent. Am I not, am I not amazing? It's like, yeah, you're amazing. You know that. Now go do something with it. Like, Go change the world for the better. Like You need to understand the ideals of good and bad and then go use your gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. Yeah, so we have this, this whole montage. And it's, it's, again, an indulgent one where he finally understands, oh, the experience I have when I smell beauty. This is what other people feel and do when that happens to them. They, they don't, ex, they don't, ex, we don't get start the same way, but this is where that's supposed to end up. This is what I wanted, actually, when I smelled that thing. Oh, and what I actually did was 
destroy a bunch of it. So now I have this thing that can, can create the experience for other people, but it's never going to bring back Yellow Plum Girl. And when he's never going to get Yellow Plum Girl, he goes full Zach Braff on the shit. And it's like, well, my Manic Pixie Dream Girl is dead at my hand. Now I will die because my arc is done, I guess. It's also pretty scary to see how far will someone go to gain acceptance, I think is also a good uh, moral of this story here. I had a diametrically opposed experience with all the same points that as opposed to this being scary because he has tried and tried, this is scary because it took so little from this man to get to this point to have this degree of power right like as far as i can tell he's shit at talking to people he's shit at being around people he's shit at everything except smelling shit like he works hard at a tannery and he like he learns a trade anybody can get better at something if they try for a while even then it's that's not something that got him extra appreciation because that was just what he was supposed to be doing in the first place was like being decent at his job and when he meets Baldini, he's an obnoxious shithead who still gets a shot at creating some of the most exquisite perfumes in the world, including traveling to this specific town and, and having this magical experience there. He's able to outwit the local authorities, apparently, at every turn with zero effort because they're more interested in their the political nature of the uh, the case. The Yeah, it's, it's more political for them. They're more worried about excommunicating him than actually finding him. Uh, he doesn't have to do much to get this immense power. And once he has it, as soon as it doesn't work for him, he'll just throw the entire thing away. Like, he, for me, what made this scary was just how far uh, someone's belief in their own talent, not even the talent itself, because no one else would have recognized that as having the value it ended up having, but someone's belief in their own talent can take them so what about you mary Kay? why is it why is it horror to you Ugh. i thought it was scary because grinoe has a talent that none of us even know exists like that that smell that smell the smellscape i guess that he has is really scary because um i was trying to figure out like what the point of it was and it seems like i don't want it to be a metaphor but it's a similar drive that murderers have that regular people don't have but we actually do have it, but we don't know that we have it, if that makes sense. Just like we can smell things that we don't know that we're smelling. So that's scary to me. It, we're shown that because the people who smell his perfumes register its genius without understanding that it's genius. Like their minds react without them actually being in charge of what they're doing, which is scary to me. And then also because uh, he has found a new reason to kill women. Also, like, this actor, perfect. Yeah, he did a good job. In a, in a world where he was, like, socialized normally, cute, probably, like, like fun to watch. Like, I don't know. This is perfect casting for that, I thought. So do we have a closing question or thought this time? What our actual perfume is? That we like wear on a typical day. Yeah. Reverse order. Yeah. So that would be you first, Mary Kay. Oh. Right? Or me. I think it's you. Okay. My actual perfume is fairly similar. It was 
Before we started recording, Mary Kay had asked us to send a picture of us holding like our copy of the Booker movie with a bottle of our favorite perfume. So that'll be on Instagram for you guys to look at if you want to smell like us, get murdered for the same reason. And I was extra excited about it because... Earlier when you were talking about the oldest perfumery in France, you couldn't hear this because I forgot I muted myself while I was eating a snack, but I went, (laughs) okay, bish, okay, bish, okay, okay, okay. Your wedding day in France... Okay, okay. Well, mine is a custom scent from Fragonard's, the oldest perfumery in France. And I had gone there when I was in Paris in September. And so the scent on that is lavender jasmine, which smelled exactly like it smelled like on my wedding day outside. So that's what I had got that scent made. And then in the shower, Andrew has this body wash that I really like, and it's cedarwood teakwood scented and i steal it more than he knows and so i use a cedarwood teakwood body wash and then i go use my lavender jasmine perfume on top of it so i think my proposed perfume is pretty similar to my actual scent fantastic my story is the opposite of that my perfume is called Le imperatrice it is dolce and gabbana it is not hard to find and i'm going to tell you because i looked it up because i don't know what it smells like I just like it. Top notes are rhubarb, red currant, juicy kiwi. Not juicy yellow plum? No, thank God. Were you trying to get me killed? (laughs) My heart notes are pink cyclamen, whatever that is, and fresh watermelon. And the base notes are musky, musky, not musk, musky, sandalwood, and grapefruit wood. I don't know what that is either. And uh, recently I've had to share an office with my ex-boyfriend who ghosted me. I don't know if you guys knew that. I love it. By that, I mean I never see him. He just comes in after I'm gone like a good boy. But I fix him good. I spray that shit all in there. And then when he comes in, you know, he's like, this is familiar. It sounds like a woman I should have treated well. This smells like my personal failings. Why? 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's way better. Okay, so my actual favorite is Hermes Kelly Calache, which smells like rose and la- and uh, leather. Ooh, Ooh, I like that. That's sexy. That's really, that's you, too. That's good. I like it. So basically, not only are we beautiful and super intelligent, we all also smell really good all the time, is what I'm hearing from this. Yeah, but not like yellow plums. But not like juicy yellow plums. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say surprising no one. For all of you gentlemen who aren't murderers... We smell fucking great. So, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, if you're listening... Bring your steak. You can cook it at our houses. <laughs> Do you want to tell me what's new in the world of everything trying to kill you, Mary Kay? What do we have coming up next? Oh, my God. You guys. I know you're going to be super pumped. I'm going to let you say it because it's your favorite thing. It is my favorite thing. It's the movie that I watched actually almost every day when I turned 12. The Mummy. That's going to be our next podcast episode. But clarify me. It's not the shitty new one. Fuck no. If you want to see me shit all over it, I wrote a blog about that a long time ago. Just, we have decided as a culture to forget that Mummy happened because it was terrible. No. So we're doing the 1999 Mummy. But if you want to have seen the new one because you hate yourself, go ahead. I think I'm going to watch the old, the first, like, the Universal Monsters movie as well. Just for the sake of, like, knowing the prototype. I dig it. I also have that, so I'll do it with you. Um, thank you, Mary, for coming back. We liked having you. Bye, everybody. Thanks for letting me come bitch for a while. 
will let us know if you liked this movie or book and what you thought was scary about it. We'll chat with you next time. Bye!